Christian, <clears throat> Christian, child of God, you are safe in God's hands. We need to be reminded of that very often. Uh, there are many hymns and songs, spiritual songs that we sing that are meant really to just remind us of that great truth. He will hold me fast is probably one of the best. We are safe in God's hands. That's the title for the sermon this morning. And today is part two. So we started this last week. We're in the last section of Romans chapter eight. And last week we covered verses 31 to 34. So verses 31 to 39 really is the last section of the epistle. And we covered verses 31 to 34 last week. And today we're going to finish it with verses 35 to 39. So if you would go ahead and go there with me in your Bibles, your phone, your, bio, your, your copy of God's Word, whatever that is, Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. And as you're doing that, listen to how the 19th century theologian Charles Hodge describes the verses that we are about to cover. He says this, this is the last step in the climax of the apostles' argument, the very summit of the mount of confidence. I love that. Whence he looks down on his enemies as powerless and forward and upward with full assurance of a final and abundant triumph. No one can accuse, no one can condemn, no one can separate us from the love of Christ. This last assurance gives permanency to the value of the other two. No one can separate us from the love of Christ. Our passage began with the confidence-building words of verse 31. The, the larger chunk that we started in on last week began with these confidence-building words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, we are safe in God's hands. I think that is the big idea of this entire passage. Nothing can jeopardize our security. Nothing at all. And Paul is going to make that so abundantly clear to us today in our passage that we're coming to this morning. Let me say this. Romans 8 as a chapter is meant to produce confident Christians. Now when I say that, uh, it, it may leave you scratching your head a little bit because the, the word confidence uh, has many different uh, shades of meaning, I think. One shade of meaning for confidence is a, a kind of general self-assertedness. So we, we, would, we would say that a person is confident who basically in their personality type is uh, not really shy, you would say, but someone who kind of walks into a room and is very self-assertive. Whether good or bad, that's a personality trait, someone with self confidence. And in many ways, we raise our children to walk 
straight and stand straight and give a good, strong handshake and so forth. And so we think about confidence as a positive thing in that way. And of course, it can also be a neutral thing as it is a personality trait. We can also think of confidence in a sinful way as we associate it with pride. So expressions of human confidence that really are synonymous with human pride. Just showing our arrogance or our conceitedness. None of these things is what Paul is after in Romans 8. It transcends personality types. It transcends all of our ways of interacting with other people, regardless of our personality or how we've experienced life or how shy we are or whatever. Romans 8 is meant to produce confident Christians who are confident in the Lord. That's the kind of confidence that Romans 8 is after. People who really do trust in what God has done for them in Christ. And that trust, that steadiness, that firmness, that stability of feet is the confidence that Paul is after. It all comes from the Lord. Paul comes at this position of safety and security from three angles. And we covered the first two angles last week. As as we think about being safe in God's hands, he comes at this from three angles. The first two last week we saw were, first, the giver will finish. And you'll see these up on the slide. The giver will finish. This is Paul's first little mini argument. If God gave up his only son for us, How will he not with him graciously give us all other things, we could say, or all things, if the greatest gift has already been given, this is Paul's logic, won't he certainly give the lesser gifts? I mean, what what, what is it to give these other things if he has already given us his very own son? And not just given us his son as a gift to have and hold and cherish, but has given us his son as a sacrifice for sin, as a sacrificial offering. Won't he certainly give the lesser gifts? In fact, hasn't he already given us all things in Christ? We talked about that last week, how Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 3 seems to suggest that this has already happened, that we already have all these things, like Abraham already had the land, but we are waiting for the consummation and realization of those things that we already in truth possess. The giver will finish Paul's second mini-argument, we looked at this also last week, is that the accuser will fail. No one can accuse us. Why? Because God is the one who justifies. God is the judge, and God has justified those who are in Christ. No one can condemn us. Why? Because Christ took our condemnation upon himself on the cross. And even more... As though Paul had to say anything else, even more, Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and there as the God-man, as the mediator between God and man, he intercedes for us before the face 
of God the Father. He now lives to make intercession for those for whom he serves as high priest. So the giver will finish, the accuser will fail. To sum up what we've looked at so far, we are safe in God's hands because the greater gift guarantees all other gifts and because no one can now accuse or condemn us before God. We could just stop there. There really is no need to say anything more. There's such abundant reassurance just there. But Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, Paul climbs that mountain still further, still higher, and gives us, as Charles Hodge says, the summit of the Mount of Confidence. So today we come to the end of Paul's argument with this little mini argument number three, and you'll find that, you'll see that up here on the slide, the love will hold. We are safe in God's hands because the giver will finish, the accuser will fail, and finally, climactically, the love will hold. The love of Christ for us, the love of God in Christ. And it is interesting in this passage we're about to read that the love of Christ and the love of God the Father are woven together. It reminds us that we worship a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we've seen the love of God expressed towards us from every person of the Trinity. It is the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit in Romans 5. And then in this passage, we see the love of Father and Son. Each person of the Trinity loves each of us who bears the name of Christ. We are safe in God's hands. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Yes, we're going to read all of Romans 8. It is so beautiful, so wonderful. I hope that you will enjoy it and not be uh, frustrated with it. But uh, it is a long passage. It's not as long as Genesis 24. I remind you, 60-some verses there. uh, But this is so glorious. Uh, what, What a blessing that we actually get to be gathered with God's people to hear all of Romans 8 read in person with God's people. So what a blessing, what a gift this is for our souls. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son. His own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. 
but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then we reach our passage for the last two weeks. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding 
for us. And now we come to our passage for today, which, as, as Hodge says, is the summit of the Mount of Confidence. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. If that doesn't bring joy to your heart, you need some resuscitation, some deep resuscitation work today. Cry out to God and ask for that. Let me pray for us as we dig into these precious verses. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that your spirit would guide the preaching of it and the hearing of it. Lord, we thank you that we have been able to just read it now and see it all fit together. Such a brainful, Lord, just uh, filling us up, our hearts and our minds. There's just so much unfathomable truth here, so much depth in this single chapter of Scripture, uh, it is, it is mind-boggling, breathtaking, staggering in every way. God, we just thank you that we have it here uh, to look at and, and to study, to spend a lifetime studying and meditating on and memorizing. Lord, we thank you for it. We pray that we will see your love for us today and, uh, God, that we would take heart, that we would be courageous, that we would be able to say, uh, with Paul that uh, the glory that is coming for us is so far beyond our sufferings that our sufferings just can't even compare to that glory and, and that we will be held by this love, Lord, that we would just trust that, that uh, we would take great strength and great joy from that, Lord, and that that would fuel our Christian living, that it would fuel our, our evangelism, our, our pursuit of holiness, our laying down our lives for the good of other people at our own expense. Lord, that there would just be such a, a growth of Christ-likeness within our church as you, by your spirit, massage Romans 8, the oil of Romans 8, into each of us and to us collectively. We love you, Father. We thank you now for your love for us, and we pray that that would be even demonstrated now as you work in our hearts under the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this final point this morning, I want to break it up into two parts. So I don't have these up there to keep it simple for you, but you can write these down. So uh, the love will hold is the big idea for this morning underneath the big idea of safe in God's hands and the two parts that I want us to look at this morning are first, the love will hold as we suffer. That's the first. And then secondly, the love will hold against anything. So as we suffer and against anything. So let's look at the first. The love will hold as we suffer. For this, let's go to verses uh, 35 to 37. Look with me there. 
35 to 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, the first question we have to ask as we come to this passage, most fundamental question is, What does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? It's really not an elaborate definition. Uh, People have broken apart, you know, uh, agape love and phileo love and and all of these different things. And and largely, uh, Bible commentators have kind of discounted that because those two words Agapao and phileo are used interchangeably, really, even in the Gospel of John, where we see that popping up a lot. So you may have grown up hearing, you know, there's agape love, and there's a, that's, that doesn't really hold when you look at the use of these different forms of love throughout the New Testament. So that has largely been discounted, that kind of minute distinction. We don't need to go into all of that in order to define Love, we simply need to look at John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. There you go. That's what love is. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. This means that however we are to characterize love, Its essence, its greatest expression is self-giving sacrifice for the good of another. That's what love is. Self-giving sacrifice for the good of another. To lay down one's life for another. So as a side note, let me just say this to you. Don't replace this with a superficial substitute. In your marriage, with your children, with your fellow church members, with your neighbors, with whoever. This is love. Self-giving sacrifice for the good of another. We are tempted in our culture Uh, particularly where the word love means absolutely nothing. It means nothing. It's been, it's evaporated of all meaning. It's a very soft, squishy word. And so you can have someone go through and have five marriages and they'd say, well, I loved each of those. I loved each of them. Or love his or her spouse when they're in a good mood. When the affections are there, but when the affections go away, or when they're not in a good mood, or there are trials and there are dark days, and the marriage is rocky and struggling, well, all of a sudden the love is gone. No, not this love. This love does not evaporate. Our world's definition of love does. This is what love is. And this is precisely what Jesus Christ did for us. 
for those whom God foreknew or foreloved and predestined, verse 29, for God's elect, verse 33, he died. Christ came and he died. He died for his church. He died for his sheep. This is love. When you think love, think Christ. He is the definition of God's love. What he did on the cross was his own perfect expression of love. And it was, as Romans 5, 8 says, the demonstration of God's love for us. When you think love, think Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And by the way, in that chapter... Paul will go on to compare the love of Christ for us, for the church, with the love that a husband is to have for his wife. So how men do we love our wives? We lay down our lives for our wives. That is how Christ loves us. And it is this perfect sacrificial love of Christ for his people that takes center stage in verse 35. As Paul asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from this very love demonstrated in his death for us? This love by which he laid down his life for his sheep. Paul is continuing his line of rhetorical questions that he began back in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge? Who is to condemn? And now, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it's interesting here where Paul goes first. Paul says, he's asking the question, who can separate us from the love of Christ. And where does he go first? His his first step, the first step he takes, one word, suffering. Suffering. He gives us a list of various aspects of human suffering, and particularly the ways in which Christians suffer. The ways in which Christians have suffered for centuries, for millennia. And Paul's big idea in these verses is that the love of Christ for us will hold in the face of every kind of suffering. So let's take a look at what he has to say here. Let's take a look at this list. We have a list here of plight. This is a painful list to read through. We can read through it rather quickly, but as we read through it, we should have images in our minds. As Paul wrote this, he would have had images in his mind. Images of biblical stories, like what we find in Hebrews 11. People sawn in two, as it's mentioned there. Images of his own suffering. Images of the suffering that he participated in as Stephen, the first recorded martyr in the New Testament, was stoned to death. Images of the sufferings that he had heard among the people of God in the churches he had ministered to and in Rome. And as we know, just less than a decade later, about eight years later, 
the emperor Nero would wreak havoc on the church in Rome. And it's always just struck me. It's, it's always been heavy on my heart, particularly as I was going through Romans 16, uh, that those names, those, those precious saints mentioned in Romans 16, were they endured the first major imperial persecution against Christians in the city of Rome. And, and you read in Tacitus, the early Roman historian, about what Christians endured in Rome. And although the populace hated Christians, they began to feel for the Christians because of the level of cruelty with which they were persecuted under the emperor Nero in the mid-60s. These words would have been in the minds and hearts of those people as they were fed to wild beasts, as they were burned in Nero's gardens, and as they were killed in many horrific ways. These words that we sit comfortably in here reading in 21st century America, here, comfortable. we're gonna leave here, sunny day, we're gonna go to have lunch, these words would have been bouncing around in the minds of God's people as they suffered horrific death less than 10 years after these words were written. God knew that was gonna happen. And so God gave these words to those saints because he knew what they would endure. This is a list of plight, great plight, a list of troubles, a list of trials of various kinds. We've already seen the first two words before in Romans, tribulation and distress. We saw these back in chapter two, verse nine. These two words were actually used for what those who die without Christ will suffer in God's judgment. Tribulation and distress will be the lot of all eternal tribulation and distress maximum tribulation and distress will be the lot for those who die without Jesus Christ. But we saw these words there, and the first word goes back to pressing or squashing grapes, this word tribulation. This is a pressure word, pressure to the point of breaking. The second word denotes being cramped into a narrow space. So both of these words give us the sense of pressure or constriction. This is what we think about when we think of stress. Uh, if you were to summarize these two words, crushed and cramped, crushing and cramping, Christians experience various, various circumstances in this life that have a crushing or cramping effect. And maybe that's, you this morning. Maybe you feel crushed or cramped. These words are for you. Paul's argument is for you. Paul's logic here is for you. Then there's persecution in particular, the mistreatment that we experience on account of our Christian faith. And let me just say this, more of this is coming in the United States. You know, I remember in 2000 and uh, 13, when we were living in the UK, uh, that is when ISIS began to, to was really sweeping through the Middle East, and it was, it was all in the news. Almost every headline was about ISIS and the horrific things that they were doing. 2013, 2014 in particular, and 
you know, we, we think about, that, that's what we think about when we think about persecution or we think about what's going on in other countries like Saudi Arabia or Christians, what they're enduring in North Korea, places like that. But what we need to understand is this is, this is the norm for Christians. And this is coming in the United States. We're already seeing this happen with different organizations and schools caving, caving, caving under the pressure of persecution. Churches so-called caving. Christians so-called caving. Persecution is coming. And it is coming on the back of the LGBTQ revolution. It's coming for all Christian organizations and for all churches. It's just a matter of time. And 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 tells us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Those who have no desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus won't be persecuted because they will compromise. But those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted because darkness hates the light. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Those who say they belong to him will walk as he walked. That's godliness. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus presents persecution as one of the defining characteristics of kingdom citizenship. You remember when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about the Beatitudes. What are the Beatitudes? They're the marks of a Christian. They're the marks of a kingdom citizen. It, we talked about it as being like a passport. You pull out your passport, your spiritual passport, and the Beatitudes is what you're gonna find on that passport. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is part and parcel of what it means to be in the kingdom of God, to what it, what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven, to, to claim Christ as your king. If Christ is your savior, he must also be your king. If he's not your king, you are still in your sins. And that is why here Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22 in verse 36. Notice the quote there in verse 36. It is the voice of the people of God who are suffering unjustly for God's sake. And why is it that Paul includes this quote from Psalm 44? expressing that sense of, of sorrow and suffering unjustly for the sake of the Lord God. Why does he include that here? Well, he's, Paul is explaining that this is the norm. This is not the exception. This is the way it has always been since righteous Abel. And this is the way it will be until Christ returns. It is the norm for the people of God to suffer. It is the norm for the people of God to suffer persecution, not the exception. We are not immune from it in this land. Then Paul continues his list with famine. 
being poorly fed, nakedness, being poorly clothed, danger or sword. And with sword, he probably is referring to execution by the authorities because he uses that same word in Romans 13 as he's talking about the power of the state to yield the sword. And Paul's question is can these things separate us from the love of Christ? So he begins, his first step is to give a list. And his question is to ask, can these things separate us from the love of Christ? Is there anything negative, anything uncomfortable, anything painful or sorrowful, anything dangerous that we could face that could possibly separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer comes resoundingly in verse 37. No, no. After that quote, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, for those who are in Christ, listen to this, we don't just retain Christ's love as we suffer. It's not just that Christ holds us with his love and we retain that love as we suffer. It's not just that we win in the end. Just get through it. Just get through it. It's going to be better on the other side. Grin and bear it, man. That's not it. No. What Paul says here is that we become super conquerors. We become mighty victors through our sufferings. And you ever wonder, you know, this theme, James 1 is often quoted. But we really find it all throughout the New Testament. We find these, these quotes that talk about, or these, these uh, verses that talk about rejoicing in our sufferings. Daniel led us through 1 Peter 1 recently, did a great job pointing out what Peter is saying there about suffering in the life of a believer. But what we find in all of these authors, whether it's Paul in Romans 5 or James in James 1 or Peter in 1 Peter 1, what we find is that they all tell us to rejoice. They all tell us not to just get through our sufferings. They don't actually just teach us to be content. No, it's far more than that. They teach us to rejoice, to be filled with this kind of exuberance. Unthinkable. This kind of inner exuberance as we are enduring sufferings of various kinds to various degrees. Because our trials actually become, and that's Paul's point here, I think, as he's talking about us being super conquerors and mighty victors. Paul's point here, I think, is to say that our trials actually become the very means of our triumph. Our trials become the means, the ingredients that God uses in our lives to reach, to bring us to that point of ultimate perseverance and glorification. This must be read in light of Romans 8, 28, which we've just seen. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So this morning, we just pause right here and think, look, look at this, this awful list. Man, it sounds so terrible. You think, I mean, I, I, that's not what I signed up for. You know, I didn't sign up for that 
list. And of course we don't. You know, it is, it is anti-human, anti-human to think about suffering as being some, some kind of intrinsic good. No, suffering and death are intrinsically evil in the sense that they derive from the fall. But God takes all the sufferings that we endure in this life and he turns them for good and uses them as ingredients for our future glory. So do you see your sufferings as part of your triumph? Or are you just grinning and bearing or maybe even complaining? How about moving from complaining to stoically grinning and bearing, to Christianly rejoicing. That's the movement that Romans 8 is calling us towards. Paul knew this well by experience. Listen to how he describes his own sufferings. We're not, we're not just reading from some guy sitting in a comfy seat in an office somewhere talking about how God is gonna use our sufferings and overcome them and these things won't tear us down. Don't worry, we're, we're gonna be strong in the end, more than conquerors. You know, it's, he's, he's not writing a philosophical paper. This is not abstract for Paul. This is life for the apostle. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28. You think your life's bad today? Maybe you came here this morning and, Grumbling, I know I'm tempted to grumble, even when the smallest things don't go my way. It's amazing, the wickedness in our hearts. And maybe that's where you, you kind of rolled up in here this morning, the little grumble in your heart, a little grumble. Is it as bad as this? Imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death, often near death, often Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. He was stoned to death but didn't die. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure and apart from other things. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Do you see why it's a bit hard to figure out what Paul's thorn in the flesh is? He had a lot of thorns all kinds of things that he was afflicted with. That was Paul's life for decades, for three decades before he was beheaded. By the way, that's how it ended. That's not in the list here because this was written before that, obviously. But, but that's where he's headed. That's where this train of suffering is headed towards being beheaded. We read in 2 Timothy, ultimately he's abandoned. He's abandoned by his companions even those closest brothers, not all of them. There's faithful Luke, but many desert Paul. He's all alone, and he's about to face execution. That was Paul's life. That's who wrote these words. 
He wrote these words knowing what it felt like to be held by God's love in the midst of great suffering from experience, not from some sort of philosophical principle. So the love holds as we suffer. That's our first point for this morning as we look at the love will hold. And here's our second and final point. The love will hold against anything. The love will hold against anything. Look at verses 38 to 39, these climactic verses. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things to come, nor things, sorry, (laughs) skipped it, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a wonder that Romans goes on. It really is. It's a wonder that, that Paul didn't just stop there. I mean, he's still got eight chapters to go. Eight chapters to go after these words. You don't get any higher than these words. But in fact, he manages to get pretty close, if not right there with them, at the end of chapter 11. That great doxology where he just praises God, just breaks out in praise of God. What a beautiful climax we have right before us in these two verses. The very first thing we need to notice is the sheer immensity and power of God's love for us in Christ. Man, when we use this word love so flippantly and superficially, we just take all of the power that is in this word, that is meant to be in this word, out. The immensity and power of God's love in Christ is presented here as the most powerful thing in the universe. Nothing can overcome it. Nothing. It is so profoundly mighty and immense that Paul prays for his Ephesian readers in chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's one thing to know that God is kindly disposed toward you. It's one thing to know that in general, God loves his people. It's another thing to know that this love, this love right here is for you, Christian, is in you, Christian. This is, how, this is what God thinks about you. All the more breathtaking when you consider how God saw you before you were in his son. John 17, verses 22 to 23. Listen to Jesus' words as he prays to the Father. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Listen, this is what Jesus prayed to the Father about us. So that the world may know that you sent me And loved them, and here it goes, here it goes. Even as you loved me. Do you hear that? 
Jesus says to the Father that the love with which he loves himself, the love with which God loves the Son, is the love with which we are loved. That's amazing. And then then it helps us to understand what it means that we're going to reign with Christ, that we are the adopted children of God, that we are Christ's brothers and sisters. Definitely surpasses knowledge. Paul begins with his own apostolic note of confidence. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 38. For I am sure. There is no doubt whatsoever in Paul's mind that God's love for us is unconquerable. Let me ask you this question. Is there doubt in your mind about God's love for you? You're a Christian. You've seen God's grace in your life. You know deep down in your heart that you're a believer. You've been saved. You've been transformed. You are putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. The Spirit cries out within you, Abba, Father. Yes, you have indwelling sin. Yes, you, know, you fall and you falter. But you're a Christian. I want to present something to us now about assurance. We've talked a lot about assurance of salvation But I wonder if you've ever thought about lacking assurance in this way. And I've thought about this a lot because this has been a struggle in my life. Is there doubt in your mind? Then repent. Do you ever, have you ever thought about it that way? I remember the first time I read uh, Anxious for Nothing. As I was, was struggling with anxiety in my life. And I read a book by John MacArthur called Anxious for Nothing. And it was absolutely healing balm to my life. It was, a, it was a, a changing point in my life. And one of the things that most struck me that I praise God for now in the very beginning of that book, in the preface, I think, was he said, worry is sin. I mean, I just thought about it so that I just needed to struggle, deal with, or it was just, I'm just kind of weak here, whatever. No, no, worry is sin. Anxiety is sin. Be anxious for nothing we are commanded, but pray. Do not be anxious about your life, Jesus says. The the notion that to worry, to be anxious, to go down that road was to sin. And what, what one needs to do is repent of that sin, confess that sin, and put that sin to death. And praise God that he showed me that Because then I began to think about it for what it was, sin. The same is true, I think, in large part with those nagging senses of, of, oh, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Am I sure I'm saved? Oh, I don't know, I don't know. Am, am, Am I really sure? That struggle with assurance. I think we do need to consider the category that repentance is in order. Repentance from that doubting God's love. Repentance from that temptation to despair. This was a big idea throughout the history of Christian theology. The notion of despair. Do not despair. Do not doubt. Repent and take God at his word. Paul goes on to list a number of pairs that could conceivably be placed in opposition to God's love. So let's go through these. Let's see what he 
lists here. Neither death nor life. The great trial of death and the great struggles of life. I love that verse later in Romans, which we'll get to, Romans 14, 8. For if we live, these words would have to be precious to anyone who is about to die. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. I pray that will be on all of our minds as we pass through the valley of the shadow of death at some point. Nor angels, nor rulers, so neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. Given Paul's usage of these words elsewhere, it appears that angels refers to good angels and rulers to demonic powers. This may also be what's in view later when Paul says powers. Uh, This language of powers and authorities and rulers, we know especially from Ephesians and Colossians that these words are frequently used of demons. Very interesting. There's a lot going on that we just do not see. There's so much more going on. The hierarchy of angels in the Bible. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, The ways in which uh, the the angels are described as having dominion over certain parts of the world. You see this in the book of Daniel. The notion of Satan as the god of this world or the prince of the power of the air. Or we fight against principalities and powers of darkness in the heavenly places. What in the world is going on around us? So much. So much that we don't see. So much at work in our culture. So much at work in our temptations. So much at work in our families. So much at work in our church. Things we do not see. But what Paul says here, neither angels nor Rulers. Colossians 2.15, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Ephesians 1.21, Christ has been exalted. Listen to this, I love this language. Far above. Christ has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Christ is preeminent. Christ is supreme. He rules the universe. There is no scary demon. Who, has not, who is not positioned under his heel, who is not under this mighty Christ who loves you and who lives in you by faith. Nor things present, nor things to come. Anything, any circumstance or event that you are facing or will ever face. Nor height, nor depth. This probably just refers to all space although it may also have some reference to heaven and hell or heavenly beings of some sort. And finally, Paul concludes with this, nor anything else in all creation. Did I leave something out? Well, if I did, let me clarify. Nothing, not one created thing. One of the, one of the most basic principles of Christian theology is what's called the creator creature distinction. There's God and then there is everything else. And what Paul is saying is that the everything else could never separate us from the love of this God. Nothing. 
You can't identify or conceive of anything in all of creation that could come between the Christian and God's love. Do you see why you should not doubt? Do you, do you see why you should not waver? Pray, trust God's word and be anxious for nothing, including your own salvation. Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the answer for every form of anxiety and fear, even this one. So to sum up, no state of being no kind of being, no time or space, nothing whatsoever can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This really should produce a fearless life. Not afraid to die, not afraid to suffer, not afraid of heartache, not afraid of hell, not afraid of spirits, this should produce in us a fearless life enveloped by the love of our great God. As we leave Romans 8, I want you to notice where it begins and where it ends. This is, this is beautiful. It's so, so uh, interesting. Verse 1, no condemnation in Christ. Verse 39, no separation in Christ. This entire chapter is bracketed by that. It starts out on the note of, you cannot be condemned, you are innocent and guiltless before God, no condemnation, and it ends with absolutely no chance of separation whatsoever at all. And by the way, this also entails separation that you yourself could cause. If you're truly a Christian, you won't fall away. If God has truly saved you, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You yourself also fit under the definition of any other created thing. Your will is part of creation, is it not? Nothing in all creation. Even your own will, though indwelt by sin, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You will persevere. God will preserve you. You will make it to your heavenly home. This is who we are. And this is what we have in Jesus Christ. This is what you don't have if you are not in Jesus Christ. You know, I, we use the language, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Yes, of course it is true that God loves all people. God made all people in his own image. And God has graciously given sunshine and rain and babies and other things to all people. There is a sense in which God loves all people under his common grace. And God loves all people on account of his image. And God loves all people because he even loves his enemy. But listen, this is not the love with which God loves you if you are not in Jesus Christ. This love is for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes people talk about love as though there is no distinction between how God sees an unbeliever and a believer. That is utterly unbiblical. Just read these verses. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. 
We are gathered this morning as a group of people who are no longer guilty before God and who can never, no matter what, in the face of any conceivable adversity or adversary, be separated from the love of God our Father in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. (laughs) What wonder it is to be a Christian. What wonder, what confidence and peace it should produce in our lives. How do we maintain that peace? How do we say no to our fleshly doubts? The same answer applies that we've applied before. You say no to doubts the same way you say no to lust, the same way you say no to idolatry. Galatians 5.16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for these magnificent words of hope. God, what glories await the children of God. Father, we are burdened by our own sin, burdened by accusers of various kinds. Lord, have mercy on us as you already have. Have mercy on us in reminding us and showing us how loved we are. Would we be sure in our hearts before you? Would we fight the devil? Would we fight for our assurance of salvation and not just roll over and get smacked around, body slammed on the ground, But Lord, would we stand in the mighty power of Christ in an Ephesians 6 manner and would we fight for our hope? Would we fight for our assurance in the strength that you supply? In Christ our Lord, we pray. We thank you, Lord, for the Lord's Supper, which we now celebrate as we are reminded of the covenant through your blood, Jesus, that binds us to yourself. We thank you for the sacrifice that you gave of your own body. You bore the wrath of God in your soul and body. We praise you, Jesus, and we remember you now, what you did for us, and we commune with you now and your precious people. In your name we pray, amen.